Welcome to episode one of Homing In on Homegoing. In this series, we will be exploring the themes and storylines found in the novel Homegoing by Yaw Jossi. My name is Rachel Smith, and with me are Noname, James, and Linda. And in today's episode, Effia and Essie, The Beginning, we will explore the novel's primary characters and how their paths affect the coming posterity, as well as secondary characters that influence these women throughout their chapters. Warning, this podcast contains serious spoilers, and sensitive topics, including discussions of slavery, rape, and violence. The first character introduced in this novel, Effia, lives in an area of Ghana known as Fontyland with her family. The night Effia was born, there was a great fire which her mother, who was a house girl, used as a diversion to escape. Baba, the woman who raised Effia, is not her real mother, but one of Effia's father's wives. When a white man named James Collinwood comes to their village for a meeting with the village chief. Effia catches his eye. James later returns to the village and asks Effia to marry him. And although she had hopes of marrying the village chief, she agrees. They move to James's home in Ghana, the Cape Coast Castle, where Effia learns about the role that her husband plays in the slave trade, the dungeons below the castle, and the people they keep there. Despite James's place in the slave trade, the two grow very close, learning each other's languages and eventually having a son, Quay. Essie's chapter begins with her in the dungeons below the Cape Coast Castle. Her chapter flashes back and forth between her present in the dungeons and her past in her village. Essie is from a village in the Asante Nation, a neighboring region to Fontyland where Effia was raised. Her mother, Mame, fled Fontyland after giving birth to Essie's half-sister, Effia. Essie is kidnapped and taken as a slave to the Cape Coast Castle and lives 10 feet below Effia for three months before being sent in a ship across the Atlantic to work as a slave in the American South. The two sisters live in the same castle, one as a slave and one as a wench. Essie's lineage explores the legacy of slavery in America, while Effia's posterity demonstrates the life of privileged Africans. Okay, let's move right into the historical context of these chapters in this book overall. This book brings to light a lot of historical context while exploring its themes, so let's talk about the history of where Effia and Essie are from. Their chapters start in the late 1700s, but the slave trade started much earlier than that. In the beginning, around 1482, Europeans began to sail down the western coast of Africa in search of gold, ivory, and other valuables to bring to their home countries. This was in the area known to Europeans as the Gold Coast, given its name by the large gold deposits in the area. The Europeans landed and built numerous castles and fortresses to protect the valuables that they found. Flash forward a bit to the early 1500s and the Europeans' conquests in the New World needed manual labor. They began to use their forts as trading posts where they traded with natives. Effia lived at one of these forts. The Europeans would supply goods, such as guns, and the natives would supply people. The natives usually gave the Europeans their prisoners of war. Tribal conflicts were a large source of slaves. When tribes fought, each side ended up with prisoners, and consequently, those people were sold as slaves. In homegoing, the Asante come to Fontyland and take prisoners, leading to Essie's capture and enslavement. The Cape Coast Castle plays a large role as a setting for both Effia and Essie, and historically it was a large trading post for slavers. Some native tribes and groups would trade often with the British and European colonizers, while others did not. 
Slaves of these dealings would be held in the dungeons of the castle before being brought to the Americas by the Europeans. For many slaves, it was the last piece of Amer- or Africa they saw being taken to the Americas. Okay, moving right into our first topic. So, Jossie uses multiple tactics to humanize her characters. What do you think are some specific examples of humanization in the two chapters we're looking at? I think for Afia, what we're looking at here is that she has to hide parts of her identity when she moves to the Cape Coast castle, specifically because James is from a different culture, their values are totally different, and some things are more taboo than others. For example, Afia is not in a position of power in the castle, nor in her relationship, so this dynamic leads to her having to cover and subdue parts of her personal and cultural identity. She really isn't free to share things from her home and her culture with James or the rest of the castle. Like when she put the fertility roots under the bed so that she and James might have a child. Another woman in the castle warns her not to let her husband see, but James eventually does find out and he really thinks of it as witchery when Ephia sees it as good. So this clash of cultures and beliefs really leads to a situation that gives a quality to Afia that is important to the reader for looking in their relationship rather than seeing it as a historical reference point. Another pattern that Yaw Jesse uses for humanization is the looks or societal expectation of beauty in the Fonti community where Afia lives. Although it is only mentioned throughout the chapter, it is often present in the topic of marriage or any new visitors that come around. Whenever people come to their house or they visit people, the women talk about their process of braiding their hair, oiling their bodies, and dressing in golden jewelry. Effia is also pleased when she is referred to as Effia the Beauty, like the village chief, Abiku often called her, and also when Abiku steals glances of her beauty during dinner or during ceremonies. This is the same beauty that invites James Collin to grow interest in her and ask to pay her bride price. The constant emphasis on beauty in the Fonte community may be relatable to American women or women from other countries reading this book, while also giving insight into the role and life of Fonte women. The chapter begins with Essie in the dungeons, which makes the reader just think of Essie as a slave, as if she had been one all her life. Yah Jessie then gives Essie some backstory so we know more about where she came from. This humanizes Essie as we now see her as a person who had another life as opposed to just a slave. Now we'd like to talk about some other patterns that are present in Effia's chapter. Something I saw in the chapter about Effia was the pattern of silence. The first example of this was when she had her first period. For Effia, having her period for the first time was important because it finally meant that she was available for marriage. The woman who pretends to be her mother, Baba, tells her she must not tell anyone, and when Effia questions her, Baba reprimands her and tells her that she knows nothing. Another example of silence in the chapter was Effia's beauty, which was a sort of silent weapon. Her beauty wasn't a weapon that Effia herself wielded, but one that was used against her. Before she was taken away by James, the governor of the Cape Coast castle, to be his wench, Effia had thought she would marry the son of the current chief of her village. As a result of her beauty, she caught the eye of James and was forced to leave her family and village behind to live as a white man's wench. Now, that example also brings up another instance of silence. Effia had wanted to marry Abiku for a while, and he made it known that he was also interested in her. 
But as soon as word reached Baba that James wanted to take Effia, she jumped on the opportunity. Effia went with James without even struggling, which I thought was interesting because of how headstrong she is later in the novel. The last example of silence that I thought was important in the chapter was Effia's silence pertaining to the slave trade. Shortly after moving into the Cape Coast castle, Effia figures out that slaves are being held under the very floor she walks on a daily basis. After she screams at James and asks him how he could do such a thing, Effia says she can feel, quote, James's hand on her mouth, pushing her lips as though he could force the words back in, end quote. For the rest of the chapter, Effia doesn't question anyone about the slaves underneath them. In this case, I think her silence is a way of protecting herself from the things that she might say or do if she really stopped and thought about what was happening in the place she lived. I think that this pattern is really interesting for Effia because she comes across as really confident and powerful, but by silencing herself and losing her voice, she loses a big part of her power and what she can use to change her future or her fate. Now let's move on to a pattern in Essie's chapter that we found. In Essie's chapter, there are a lot of patterns brought up, including loss of identity, loss of innocence, and loneliness. Essie grew up with a good life. Her father was a big man, and she was more or less an innocent child. But she learned from Abranoma, the house girl, that she wasn't her mother's first child. Her mother was raped by her former master, and this is really Essie's first introduction to something outside of her innocent life. When villagers attacked her home, her mother Ma'ame refused to run into the fire as she had done with Afia. Instead, she stayed put and gave Essie a stone which she had been saving for Essie's wedding day. This is really the only tangible thing left of her mother. When Essie loses her mother, the stone is the last connection to her and her former identity. When warriors attacked, she may have known true fear for the first time and felt hopelessness. She buried her mother's stone in waste after swallowing it, swallowing it in order to find it. She's surrounded by other slaves. Some she may uh, be able to communicate with, and others she probably cannot. For Essie, being surrounded by people is also where she feels most lonely. She was raped by a soldier. He didn't know her and didn't care. She loses her identity and becomes a slave that he can do what he wants with which is not something Essie had ever experienced before. She reflected back to her time when she was still a little girl and caught her parents, but it is not the same thing. A part of her childhood she now understands for what it was, strip, was stripped away with some of her memories of home. When she loses her stone for good, she loses her last real connection with her identity, home, and lineage. Her last words in the chapter illustrate how experiences tore apart her preconceived notions and forever cast a shadow when she says, but for the rest of her life, as she would see a smile on a white man's face and remember the one soldier, the one the soldier gave her before taking her to his quarters, how white men smiling just meant more evil was coming with the next wave on page 49. To conclude, although that these characters seem very different, we can see a pattern between their stories. First, they are both the beginnings of the two lineages on which the book will focus. Secondly, since they're half-sisters, they leave the readers thinking how one small thing can change the future of a family so much. The opposites compared in Effie and Essie's chapters 
like being in a different part of the Cape Coast castle at the same time, reflect how parallels will be shared throughout the lineages. One of these parallels are the families that they are born into. Effia doesn't have a great family life, but marries into a better class, while Essie has a great life, but then loses it all when she's captured. Now, they also have the connection of the stone that was given to them by their mother. Essie loses this stone as she is captured and brought into slavery, therefore losing her connection with Ghana as she is shipped off to the United States. Effia keeps her stone and continues to live in Ghana and passes the stone through generations as her family also remains connected to Ghana's history and culture. These chapters also give us a look into the beginning of slavery and how it began. Most people from the United States are familiar with the slavery industry there and know about that history, but a lot of people don't recognize Ghana's or other African countries' involvement in this trade. I mean, personally, I didn't even know that interracial marriages between the Ghanaians and the British led to villages from Ghana working in the slave trade. This begins the institution of slavery and dictates its future around the world because of where it stems from. I think that this book is especially impactful as someone from the United States, where racism is still an issue and many African Americans feel the effects of this legacy to this very day, which makes this book even more relatable for them. That concludes the first episode of Homing In on Homegoing. Join us next time as we explore the chapter of Effia's son, Quay, and analyze his chapter as he grows up in Ghana. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to tune in for the next episodes on the limited series podcast, Homing In on Homegoing.